0: Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are forgiven positionally as part of our reception of the redemption solution. But at the instant that we sin, our fellowship, that rapport that we have with a holy, righteous God, is broken. The ministry, the ongoing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is grieved or quenched, the Scripture says. And in order to restore that, we must admit or acknowledge our sins to God. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin every uh, Bible study, every focus on the Word, with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. There is nothing on earth that we think about, that we explore, that we study, that we investigate, that was not already present in your mind from eternity past. You have declared the end from the beginning. And you are aware of and know of an infinite amount of information that we can merely guess at or in many cases not even imagine. And Father, we come to your word because it is the expression in a finite manner of your omniscience where you have revealed to us that which we need to know in order to live within the universe that you have created. So, Father, as we submit ourselves to the study of your word and to the revelation that you have given, we pray that we might be responsive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit as he challenges us with these eternal truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Revelation chapter 4 where we are taken into the throne room of God. This is a a revelation of the, the supreme court of heaven. The focus of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is actually upon God's rule as judge. There are different manifestations, different emphases on God's rule in the scripture, but the focal point in chapter 4 and 5 is going to be on God as the supreme judge of human history, the supreme judge of the world at the beginning of the execution of this final series of judgments known as the Great Tribulation. The Apostle John is taken into heaven. In verse 1 we read, After these things, that is after the events of Revelation 2 and 3, which depict the trends of the church age, he says, I looked, and behold, a door having been opened. It's a perfect tense there indicating an existing result. A door having been opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place. After this, as we have gone through the first seven or eight verses of this chapter, I've pointed out that we need to identify several things. It is much like a, a going to a play or watching a film where you have to have the cast of characters or going to a sports event where you need to know who the players are. And so we have identified uh, seven identifications which must be made in these chapters the first is the throne and the one sitting on it. This is God the Father. The Apostle John is trans, uh, instantly uh, transported into the throne of God. And the one who is sitting on the throne is depicted as a judge. This is God the Father here. Then we have the 24 elders who are sitting on thrones surrounding the throne of God. These are introduced in verses four, and in verse four, as those who already have crowns, clothed in white robes, which indicates that they are rewarded. These are the raptured and rewarded church age believers. They are mentioned several more times in the book of Revelation. It's important to know who they are and their function. At this point, they're sitting, but by the end of the chapter, they will be. Uh, Falling down prostrate before the throne of God in worship. Then we have the seven lamps and the seven spirits of God before the throne. We studied this last time that this is an expression of the fullness of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in His uh, role as the illuminator and revealer of truth. And then following this, we have the four living creatures... We began to study them last time. This is a classification of angels among the highest angels. We have uh, several different groups, which we'll study again in just a minute, and these are among the highest. Then as we get into uh, chapter 5, we see the Lamb come before the throne, and then there will be a scroll presented and the seven seals on the scroll. We need to identify each of these, and that will come to pass in due time. So these are we have identified the first 4 we have 3 to go. Now in verse 6 we read before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. This is not a crystal sea per se. This is a a sea that is glassy and it indicates a separation between the one who is sitting on the throne and the creatures that surround him for the angels that surround the throne The four living beings that surround the throne, the 24 elders, are all creatures. And there is this distinction between the creatures and the creator. And the emphasis here is on the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of the one who is sitting on the throne. That he is unapproachable. And we read that in the midst of the throne... And around the throne are these four living creatures described as being full of eyes in front and in back. We'll find this kind of metaphor several times as we look at both the living creatures and others in the Scripture. This concept of being full of eyes indicates omniscience. It indicates full awareness of everything that is going uh, on around them. In verse 7, we read that the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. This is what distinguishes these four living creatures from another group that are also identified as living creatures or living beings in the book of Ezekiel and later they are identified as cherubim. The I am comes from the Hebrew. It's a the plural, so we can refer to them either as cherubs or cherubim. And these are yet distinct for we'll see the difference as we go to Ezekiel one to investigate the nature of the cherubs. And then in verse eight we see the activities of these four living creatures. Each has six wings they are full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, I've pointed out a couple of times that in this expression of praise to God, the emphasis is on His holiness, but the one who is being praised is the Father Not the Son. There has been some confusion. Some look at this phrase and they see this last designation, the one who is to come. And they think in terms of the return of Jesus at the second coming. And of course that is a focus and a theme in the book of Revelation leading up to that great event in Revelation 19 when the Lamb of God returns with his bride to destroy the forces of evil under the Antichrist and the false prophet. But if you go go a few chapters later to Revelation 21, you see that God the Father Himself comes and takes up residence with man in the uh, new heavens and the new earth. He is the one who is to come. Throughout the book of Revelation, as we'll see, is this phrase, Lord God Almighty, always refers to the Father. And of course, in this scene, if you think about it, you have one sitting upon the throne. This is described in chapter 4. But then the Lamb, who is the Son of God, comes before the one who is sitting on the throne in chapter 5. So obviously these are two distinct persons. So this cannot be a reference to the the uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, but must be a reference to God the Father. I pointed out last time that when we have this phrase, they do not rest day or night, this is the Apostle John writing phenomenologically. Now, what do I mean by phenomenologically? He is writing it as it appears to him and from his limited, finite uh, human experience. It's just like you, you do the same thing. You wake up in the morning and you say, well, the sun has come up. Well, actually, we know that the sun doesn't move. It's the earth that uh, revolves on its axis or rotates on its axis. And that... Um, uh, We just talk about sunrise and sunset because that's what it appears to us from our limited vantage point, even though it's the earth that's moving and not the sun. This is the same thing that John is doing here. There is no day or night in heaven. He is simply talking about the fact that this is an ongoing event. And the picture that we get from his description in Revelation 4 and 5 is that these... He, he's there for what seems to him to be a long period of time. Once they bring the scroll out in chapter 5, we'll see that, that they bring the scroll out and they begin to search for someone who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll. And they search everywhere. Now that, of course, would, from John's perspective, appear to take a lengthy period of time and so these events in 4 and 5 appear to John to go on for a long period of time and so he sees these living creatures for a long period of time saying uh, holy 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 they are ascribing praise to God but the focus of this praise is on his holiness now there's another aspect of this that we um, have to deal with it's one that I'm not Absolutely convinced of, but in the majority text, you've heard me refer to the majority text before. There is a major a textual problem here, and which is always I found interesting, but never had the time to do, do a lengthy analysis of. This is called the trihagios, hagios being the Greek word for holy, the trisagios. But in the majority text, it says holy, 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 holy holy, holy, holy. There are nine holies, three for each of the three members of the the Trinity. And that is found in the vast majority of Greek manuscripts, which is why it's called the majority text. And there are some variations there. But for our purposes, it doesn't change any doctrine. The focus of this Praise is on the integrity of God as the one who is holy. Now, what does holy mean? Holy is one of those words that uh, we bandy about a lot as Christians. We say it, we sing it, uh, people talk about it, use it, but very few people truly understand what holy means. Sometimes we talk about certain self-righteous people as being holier than thou. And we think of holiness primarily to mean that which is uh, has perfect righteousness that which is morally pure but that is not the core meaning of this this particular word if the the New Testament concept of holy hagias is based on the Old Testament revelation of the holiness of God and in the Old Testament the verb that is used to describe the holiness of God and the noun come from a root that has three basic consonants of Q, D, and S, H. The noun is kadosh. The verb is kadash. And yet in the masculine, uh, there's one form of the masculine noun, one form of the feminine noun that are used to describe the temple prostitutes in the fertility religion of the worship of the baalim and the asherah. This is where... The worshiper would go into these groves or these designated uh, pagan temples and they would engage in sexual intercourse with the temple prostitutes as an act of fertility in order to try to motivate the gods to make the soil fertile. That was the emphasis in these pagan religions. And yet these, these uh, temple prostitutes were called with, with this root kadash. And this gives us the root meaning. It's not morally pure because they, of course, were not morally pure. They were totally dedicated to the service of their God. That is the root meaning of holiness, is to be set apart for the service of God. Thus, you have furniture in the temple that was described as holy. But if holy has the core meaning of being morally pure, then you couldn't describe an inanimate object that way because a bowl or a piece of furniture cannot be either moral or immoral. So it has the root idea of being set apart to the service of God or simply to be set apart. Now when this is used to describe the character of God, it is emphasizing the fact that God himself is completely set apart. He is completely distinct from his creation. It emphasizes again this whole idea of the creator creature distinction that God is not like the creator he is not just a a human being that is much larger with greater powers and more intellect but he is something that is totally other totally distinct and that we can only understand him analogically we cannot understand him directly because he is infinite. The Old Testament says that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And so we can only understand him through analogies, through figures of speech, through points of contact that are uh, common to our experience where we can have some idea of who he is and what he is like. But this emphasizes the fact that he is so... Uh, completely distinct, that he is the one who is worthy of worship. Now, as a secondary idea, many passages bring into the concept of holiness the idea of his perfect righteousness and justice. Because as we examine this whole context of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see that this is a, a focal point on the operation of his justice, his Righteousness is the standard of His character. It is absolutely perfect. His justice is the outworking, the application of that perfect righteousness toward His creatures. And His righteousness and His justice uh, combine together. And often you'll read uh, theologians who define holiness as the uh, combination of His righteousness and his justice, but it's, it's, it's more than that. It is something that, that sets God completely apart from all of his creatures. And so the picture that we have here is because he is holy, because of his absolute perfection, because of his perfect justice, he is the one who is qualified to, and the only one who is qualified to bring judgment on mankind, and to execute justice over evil in the history of mankind. And of course, what we see in this chapter is what Jesus mentioned in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, all judgment has been given to me by the Father. Well, that happens in this chapter in chapter 5 when the scroll is brought forward they look for someone worthy to open the seals that is someone who is worthy to open this document of judgment and to execute it in history and that's when the Lamb of God comes forward and they break into praise again singing worthy uh, is he to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood this is in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 So uh, this is when the judgment is delegated from God the Father as the ultimate supreme judge of the universe to His Son, who is both man and God. And He, as our peer judge, as one who is fully human, is the one who brings about judgment on the human race. But that's getting ahead into the emphases of the next chapter. But that's what is brought out. So the the foundation is being laid in chapter 4 for the action that will occur in chapter 5. The emphasis is on His holiness, His power. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the Eternal and Everlasting One. Well this is sung by these four living creatures and we started last time with an introduction to what the Bible teaches about angels, an introduction to angelology and we just got through the first uh, four points or so, or so so I want to review those very very quickly. This will uh, enable those of you who are, weren't here last time to pick up on the flow and those of you who are, uh, were here to be reminded of our context. Briefly, we'll hit these first point was that both the Greek word angelos and the Hebrew word malach are terms for that mean messenger. These are the, the words that are translated angel and they mean messenger. The English word angel is actually a transliteration of the Greek word angelos. Some of you have had a, a smattering of Greek here or there and you may look at that uh, word that is transliterated angelos and see that it's spelled with a double G. Well, a little rule of Greek pronunciation is when you have a double G, it's pronounced like it's an ng. So it is uh, pronounced Angelos. Second point: this term for angels uh, describes a class of rational. That means they are they have intellect, they think, they are much brighter, much more knowledgeable, and much more capable than human beings are. They are a class of rational immaterial spirit beings. That is, they are not made of flesh and blood. They are not subject to the same physical laws uh, to which we are subject. They are immaterial spirit beings created by God to fulfill a variety of functions. They carry out His will. They uh, supervise the uh, mechanical operations of the universe, as we'll see. They are messengers of revelation and they communicate divine judgment i've listed a few of these here under the point that they're mediators of divine revelation galatians 319 they are messengers of god daniel 10 11 witnesses of divine justice and its operation that's the whole book of revelation they attend the divine throne ezekiel 1 5 which we'll go to in a minute uh, ezekiel 1 5 and isaiah 2 6 and they are also overseers of the outworking of divine judgment. Third, we saw that angels can appear in human form. They can somehow transform their immaterial bodies into physical bodies that appear to have all of the functions of a physical material human human body. Uh, they always appear as males. And there seem to be at least three categories, seraphim, cherubim, and the living beings that we have in this passage that have wings the living beings have six the cherubim have four and the seraphim have six and it may indicate their superiority over the other angels uh, there are other angels that are described as flying in Daniel 9.21 and Luke one nineteen, but we don't know if that means that they have wings and then under the fourth point I said that scripture reveals several classifications of angels. Now, if you come out of certain uh, church backgrounds, then you've been told that there are other angels with other names, but those do not come out of the scripture. So we limit our study to what the Bible says. The first classification of angels are the cherubs or cherubim. This is the highest class of angels. They are associated with and attend the glory, the holiness, and the majesty of God. Lucifer, before he fell and became Satan, was a cherub. He was called in Ezekiel 28 the anointed cherub who covers. Cherubs, and then we have seraphs. Seraphs are from a root word in the Hebrew meaning burning ones. They seem to be angelic incendiaries who are ablaze with the glory of God. It emphasizes His purity and His holiness. And they continually announce his triune holiness. Once again the Trishagios. Isaiah six three, Holy, holy, holy. Then we have the living beings. In the Hebrew this is the word hayot. It's in the plural. And this word means the, the living literally. And so we uh, expand that to be those who are living or the living beings. The living creatures. The living ones. They are not... Uh, uh, living beasts. I think the, this is a mistranslation in the old, uh, King James, which translated these as, as beasts. This is incorrect. It is a very unfortunate translation. The idea in, in the Greek is living ones, as it is also used in Ezekiel chapter one. As far as individual angels, there is one archangel. Arche in the Greek means the preeminent one. And this is Michael who is mentioned in Jude 9 and also Gabriel. Michael seems to be associated with Israel. And Gabriel is a messenger who announces significant events related to Israel. Michael is associated with the protection of of Israel, whereas Gabriel seems to be related to the announcement of significant events related to Israel. Uh, specifically, we know of his involvement in the announcement of Mary's pregnancy to Mary. He Gabriel warned Joseph. Uh, Gabriel announced the birth of the Messiah. So these two are the only named angels that we have uh, in the scriptures. Angels also have different ranks. Colossians 1.16 and Ephesians 1.20 and 21 describe them as thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. So there are rankings and organization among the angels. In the Old Testament, a term for God was Yahweh Sabaoth. And the Hebrew word Sabaoth, which is a word that we also sing in Uh, The hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is a Hebrew word meaning host, which is an archaic English word for armies. And so all of the angels are described as the armies of God. So they have, like any military, they have good organization, and they have ranks, and they have a structure of authority. Now when we come to the book of Revelation, we can observe five different characteristics of these living beings, and it's an important part of any kind of Bible study to understand how something is used within the the book or the epistle that is being studied. Uh, you, it's important to do uh, studies in terms of earlier books that have been written, but we need to understand how something is used within a book itself. And since these living beings play an important role in the outworking of the justice of God in Revelation. I think it will help us if we just glance at a couple of passages as we do this. And you might want to jot down these references in the margin if they're not there in your Bible already. These four living beings are always before the throne of God and the Lamb of God. We see this in chapter 4 verse 6 and chapter 5 verse 6 as well as in chapter 14 verse verse 14 there we read John saying then I looked and behold a white cloud and uh, excuse me I must have typed that in as a as a um, typo there I oh, will skip that it's not 14.4 I've got a typo and I'm going to look it up now second they have six wings and they're full of eyes as they're described here in Revelation 4, 6 through 8, I think also the wings indicate their power and the eyes, as I stated earlier, indicate the extent of their knowledge and their awareness of all that is going on around them. When they are pictured in the scripture, they are, in Revelation, they are engaged in praising God for his character. The focus is on who God is and what He has done. We see this in chapter 4, verse 8. Again, in chapter 5, verse 9, singing praise to the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. And note, I just want to make this comment in passing. Note that the text there says that He is worthy because He was slain and because He has redeemed us to God by His blood. Now, those of you who have been around here for a while know that I make the point that the term blood of Christ is not to be taken literally. This is a term that is a, um, an idiom for the spiritual death of Christ on the cross. The term shedding of blood was actually an idiomatic term that has its roots in the Hebrew, and that goes back as far as the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, God gives this covenant to Noah. And in that covenant, he gives the foundation for uh, capital punishment. And in there we read that whenever man's blood is shed by man, then man should also shed that man's blood. It is a principle for capital punishment. But if the shedding of blood is to be taken as a literal phrase, then that would restrict capital punishment to only murders where blood is actually shed. That would exclude strangulation. It would exclude poisoning. It would exclude electrocution. Blood would have to be shed literally. So it's obvious just from that phrase, and if you trace it through the Old Testament, the concept of shedding of blood is actually an idiom for any kind of violent death. When we come to this passage and we read, uh, this It is an emphasis on the fact that it is Christ's substitutionary atonement, his spiritual death on the cross, that paid the penalty for our sins. Now, some people have gotten hypersensitive about this. Once they come to understand that the phrase blood of Christ is not a literal term, and there's a lot of fundamentalists who get real upset about this because they think that it's the literal uh, hemoglobin, plasma, and everything else that somehow is salvific, and that can't be demonstrated from Scripture, but there's a lot of hymns that are mistaken in the way they present it. There's a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. You're familiar with some of these. But there are many other hymns that use the idiom in a biblical sense. Now, I've heard some people say, well, we shouldn't sing that hymn because it has the phrase, Blood of Christ, in it. Well, the, Bible, the Holy Spirit thought that was a very good term to use. The Holy Spirit used the term blood of Christ numerous times, in fact, right here in Revelation 5.9. So if the metaphor is used correctly in a hymn, then it's fine to use it. When it's used incorrectly, then we shouldn't sing those hymns, and we don't, because they express a false concept. This actually goes back to a Roman Catholic heresy that developed in the early Middle Ages that it was the literal blood of Christ. There was an angel that collected it at the base of the cross and carried it into heaven, and they attach a lot of other superstition and mysticism to it, and actually the death by crucifixion was virtually a bloodless death. So the emphasis is simply uh, uh, on his spiritual substitutionary atonement, but that's just a digression. Let's get back to our study on the living beings. They're engaged in praising and worshiping God. Chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 14. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. A term that means uh, it's true. It is a confirmation of that which is true. It goes back to a Hebrew word which has as its foundation the idea of truth and faithfulness. And at that point, at the end of this section, we see the four living creatures saying amen and the 24 elders again falling down, uh, prostrate and worshiping God. Again, we find them worshiping God in Revelation chapter 7, verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God here are all of the, those before the throne worshipping him uh, this occurs between the 6th and 7th seal of judgments and at that point they say amen blessing and glory and wisdom thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever now I want you to notice these we, we may go over these again as we go through the doctrine of worship which is very important. I, I, we're building to that because Revelation 4 and 5 is fundamentally a passage of worship. We find the, that they're worshiping again and again. But what exactly is worship? What does that mean? And today there are worship battles in churches. There are churches I know of in this city that have split in just the last couple of years over this whole issue of, of worship, contemporary worship versus uh, traditional worship. And so we need to take some time to study those, those issues. And you have to develop your whole concept of worship from the Scriptures. And they fall down. That's the core meaning of the word worship, is to prostrate yourself in submission to God. And as part of worship, they focus on God. Worship is always theocentric. It is not anthropocentric. And so worship isn't about what happens to me. Worship is about who God is and what He has done. And just think about that for a while and use that as a criterion for evaluating a lot of what goes on in the world today. Uh, The last passage where the living creatures are mentioned is in Revelation chapter 19 uh, verse 4. This is just prior to the return of the Lord to the earth. And here they are before the throne and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Now, Alleluia is not some word with special uh, spiritual connotations so that if you say that, uh, somehow you have praised God. Alleluia comes from the Hebrew word, Hallel, which is the word for praise, which means to ascribe honor and glory to someone to give thanks for what they have done. And the word Hallel is simply the word for praise. The imperative form of that verb is Hallelu. That last you is a second person plural imperative ending. And it means you all praise. It's a command. And Yah is the first syllable of the name of Yahweh. So hallelujah is a command to people to praise God. It is not a descriptive term praise God. It is a command to others to praise God. It, in and of itself, it is not praising God. There are many churches and people say "Hallelujah" all the time and Amen and it just, it, it, it's empty, vacuous, meaningless uh, noise. "Hallelujah" means to praise God and when you read praise, declarative praise, uh, and descriptive praise psalms, what they are, are hymns that describe and declare what God has done in history, who has who he is in terms of his character, and what he has done in history. That is what praise to God is. It is not the mindless uh, repetition of some of these words where people think that somehow that's special spiritual vocabulary. Uh, they're not praising God by saying praise God. You praise God by declaring what he has done and describing it to people and ascribing, ascribing honor and glory to him. So these angels, are these living beings are involved in praising and worshiping God. Uh, They have special duties uh, to perform, such as calling forth for the dreadful manifestations of the judgment of God. In chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, Thundering, Come! And see. So the living creatures were taking the Apostle John to show him the outworking of the uh, justice of God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, and again in verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, John says, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So they have these specific duties as witnesses and revealers of the outworking of the judgment of God. And then one of them actually is involved in handing over uh, one of the uh, bowls of the wrath of God in Revelation 15, verse 7. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Wrath of God referring to the outworking of his justice during the tribulation period. Now, like I said these creatures are very similar to those that we already find in Scripture, so turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. To Ezekiel chapter 1. You now, there are a lot of aspects of what we'll uh, touch on here in Ezekiel 1 that I'm not exactly sure how all of this is to be understood. It is a picture, though, of the same thing that we, same kind of thing that we see in Revelation 4 and 5. It is a picture of the throne of God described by Ezekiel in terms of his own frame of reference. But our focal point here is just on these uh, living creatures. Ezekiel 1.5, he says, uh, having described this, he has a vision. This takes place in 592 B.C., this is just after the second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into the Promised Land where uh, Ezekiel was taken captive back to Babylon. This is, uh, Daniel was taken in the first group in 605. Ezekiel taken in the second group in 592. And God gives him this, this particular vision of the heavenly throne room. Again, the emphasis is on the outworking of God's justice because much of the subject matter in Ezekiel is on the judgment of God in relationship to the nation Israel and also in terms of its uh, ultimate judgment of the earth uh, in the future. So as Ezekiel is describing the throne of God in verse 5 he says from within it came the likeness of these four living creatures and the Hebrew is kaya which simply means living ones living things, living creatures. This was their appearance. They, of all of them, had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Now, these are the same four that we find in Revelation, but in Revelation, the living creatures each had a different face. Each had one face, one a lion, one a calf, one an eagle, one a man. Here, each of these creatures has four faces and each has four wings those in Revelation 4 have six wings so these are different they are very similar but yet they are different their legs are straight he says the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves feet that means they are hard like hooves they, they sparkled like the color of burnished bronze this has the idea of brilliant polished metal it is it, reflecting uh, gold, and the emphasis is the same as we saw when John describes the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter one, and it depicts him in his purity as a judge, so it again this this imagery uh, emphasizes the purity the holiness of God. Ezekiel says in verse eight, The hands of a man were under their wings on the four sides, and e- which indicates that they had arms as well. each of the four had faces and wings. Then in verse ten he writes, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox, it's a calf in Revelation four, on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. So we have these same uh, four animals uh, mentioned here. Verse 18, as for the rims, see this is when he sees the throne of God and says if it's on these turning wheels, and he says, as for their rims, in reference to the wheels, they were so high, they were awesome. Their rims were full of eyes around all four of them. So again, that imagery of awareness, omniscience, the eyes uh, everywhere. Verse 22, the likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads this is similar to the image that we have in Revelation 4 not exactly the same but it's not the same uh, necessarily showing the same thing above the firmament in verse 26 over their heads was the likeness of a throne an appearance like a sapphire stone this is the same appearance we have in Revelation 4 and on the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man above it now these creatures are Not identified until you get to chapter 10, verse 20. And there, Ezekiel says, This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kavar. That's going back to chapter 1, rather. And I knew they were cherubim. Now, the cherubim are a particularly significant class of angels in the Old Testament. As I pointed out already, Lucifer was among this class. He was a cherub. This isn't some of those little angels you see in Renaissance painting. I mean little babies you see in Renaissance paintings with wings. These are fearsome warrior type uh, creatures. And they are always associated with the uh, character of God. In the te- tabernacle and then later the temple, there was a veil that was set in the holy place. It separated the outer room from the inner holy of holies. And on this veil, there were the images of the cherubs. Is Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, this veil would be woven with the artistic design of a cherub. Furthermore, in Exodus chapter 25, 18 to 21, we're told that in the holy of holies, there would be the Ark of the Covenant And on top of this ark, which was a gold-covered wooden box, there was a lid that covered this box. That that lid was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there were uh, two cherubs depicted. Looking down upon the mercy seat, they depict the holiness of God, His righteousness, His justice, as it is satisfied by the uh, blood that is placed there inside the box were the emblems of Israel's sin, the broken Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and, and the manna depicting the fact that the Jews had rejected the law of God. They would broken it. They had rejected his provision of the priesthood when they rebelled against Aaron's priesthood, which uh, was uh, the significance of, the, of his staff when it sprouted green leaves. And then the manna they got. They complained about the provision of God's food. So this is their sin that's inside the box of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was set over it and on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement each year the high priest would come in and place this blood. And it was a picture of God's character being satisfied by the atoning sacrifice. This was picked up later by the Apostle Paul. The same terminology used to describe that which Christ did on the cross, that Christ paid the penalty for our sins and the holiness and righteousness of God was propitiated. And the same word that is used for propitiation in the New Testament is the word that is used for the Kaforth or the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So this is uh, related to what the cherubs do. They are witnesses of the satisfaction of the justice of God passages like Isaiah 37:16 talk about God as Yahweh of hosts once again the Lord of the armies God of Israel the one who dwells between the cherubim that is a fact that he the dwelling of God was in the temple over the ark of the covenant in Psalm 18:10 he wrote upon a cherub speaking of God he wrote upon a cherub he flew upon the wings of the wind so these are The cherubs, yet they are distinct from uh, the living creatures. Just one more passage in the Old Testament as we conclude this is in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. This is when Isaiah is transported into the throne of God. In verse 1, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. You see, the living creatures have six wings, the seraphim had six wings, but they're, uh, they're different in other aspects. One cried to another in verse 3 saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So you see in these passages what is described is Uh, An emphasis on the throne of God the presence of God is one who is completely distinct because of his character he is holy and because he is holy he is worthy to be worshipped in fact when we use this word worthy it is related in English etymologically to our English word worship which comes from the old English word worth ship meaning one who is worthy to be honored And this brings us up to the fact that in uh, Revelation chapter 4 verse 9 we read that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, then what happens is that the 24 elders, uh, instead of sitting upon their thrones and observing their worship, they... "...fall down prostrate before the throne of God." Verse 10, we read, "...then the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, "...you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." Now, this sets us up for understanding investigating what the Bible teaches about worship, something that, is, that confuses a lot of people today, something that is a point of tremendous contention in a lot of congregations today. And so we will begin a study of biblical worship next Sunday morning. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are reminded as we come to this point in the text that the reason You are worthy to receive glory honor, and power is because of who You are. That You are the One who created all things, but You also provided us with a perfect salvation. And our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of worship because He is the One who died for our sins, the One who was slain, the One who paid the redemption price for us, that we might have a salvation, not based on who we are or what we do, but on who you are and what you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works, not by ritual, not by church involvement, not by any factor that can uh, be the result of our own effort, but simply because we accept, receive the perfect gift of salvation based on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to trust in Christ. The instant you believe that Jesus died for you and that that is the only basis for eternal salvation, God the Father imputes to you uh, His perfect righteousness. He declares you just. He, regenerates you he gives you eternal life which can never be taken from you and this is your possession forever and ever father we pray that you challenge us with what we study today recognizing that is it is your character that is a, should be the focal point of our lives it is your character that is a focal point of worship and that we have come today to honor you and glorify you for all that you have done in history and because of who you are. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.